it feels like our Native communities is this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjit Singh, the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. The person you heard before was Mark Charles, who describes himself as a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation. He's making history this year by becoming the second ever Native American to run for president of the United States of America. I recently heard Mark speaking at the Aspen Institute about how white supremacy infiltrated Christian theology to justify colonialism, oppression, and genocidal violence. I also read his recent book on this topic, co-authored with Soong Chan Ra, called Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. I've learned so much from his work already, and I'm so grateful to sit down and learn more about how all of Mark's work relates to his personal experiences. So, hi, Mark. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. And I, would you please uh, introduce yourself? It would be wonderful to hear that. Yes, thank you. Yat A, Mark Charles Yinishia, Sin Bake Dene Anishle, Doto Higlini Bashachin, Sin Bake Dene Dashache, Doto Dachitni Dashanella. In the Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're a matrilineal people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So, my mother's mother happens to be a American of Dutch heritage, and so I say Tsin Bake Dene. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin Bake Dene. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Before I go any further, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we are here in New York City and we are on the land of, of the Lenape. Uh, these were the, this was the nation that lived here. They farmed here, they fished here, they raised their children here, they buried their dead here, their society was here. These were the people who were removed from these lands so the state of New York and the city of New York could be built. I like to acknowledge wherever I go the people whose land I'm on. A, it's very good to remind myself that these lands were not discovered. And second, it's very healthy and helps me to walk more humbly when I remember that the land I'm walking on has a story that predates the history of that I've been told and the books that I've read. And so wherever I go, I try to remember whose land I'm on. And I just want to acknowledge and thank the Lenape people for the, the, not only the years, but the centuries that they've spent stewarding these lands. And uh, it's my honor to be on these lands today. You know, it's a acknowledging the native lands. I've started to try and engage that practice myself recently. Actually, after seeing your TED Talk and, and see, hearing you do it and, and explain why you do it. But also I've noticed uh, that it's, it's an increasingly popular practice, I, especially in, you know, when I'm in Canada and recognizing First Nations peoples when I'm in uh, Australia or New Zealand as well, and they're recognizing Aboriginal lands. And, you know, I'd just be interested to hear what you think, you know, when somebody who is not a Native person um, is recognizing those lands, what does that signify to you? And, and does it seem appropriate or inappropriate? 
I think it's very appropriate. It doesn't happen very often. Canada is much better at it because they have a smaller population, and so their native population is a, a greater percentage of the entire population of the country. And they've done a bit better job of actually keeping and remembering some of their treaties. And so usually in Canada, they will acknowledge not only whose land they're on, but what treaty establishes um, the rights to that land. Um, it's still a little backwards because they talk about why the natives, what treaty gives the natives the right to be there instead of what treaty gives the, gives the white people the right to be there. Um, they've still been influenced deeply by the doctrine of discovery. And there's actually a good resource um, that I use frequently when I travel. It's called Native Land, native-lands.ca. And uh, it's um, a website that is a great place to start your research of what land you're on. Um, you can put in your city, you can put in your state, you can put in your zip code, and it will bring up um, both treaties from that land, the original inhabitants of that land, the languages spoken in that land. Mm. And does it signify anything to you personally? As in, um, here is someone who understands my plight or cares about my people or something like that? Or, or is it, does it come off as superficial? It's not as much as understanding my plight as it's understanding their space. In August, I was at the Frank Lemire Native American Presidential Forum. Ten of the Democrats were there. Five who are still in the race were there. Uh, Bernie Sanders was there. Elizabeth Warren was there. Julian Castro was there. Marianne Williamson was there. Um, Kamala Harris was there. And at this, at this forum, they participated or saw that we did a land acknowledgement. Some of them even acknowledged the land themselves when they were speaking. They all promised how when they came into the White House, they would acknowledge and remember the, the, the plight of the First Nations peoples here in the U.S. for the many conversations that we've had together. It is a great honor to be able to partner with Indian country. And that's what I've tried to do as a senator. That's what I promise I will do as President of the United States of America. And that felt good. I applauded them for coming to that forum and for saying these things and making these promises. But I was very disheartened when three weeks later, they all gathered in Houston for the third presidential forum. And not only did none of them acknowledge the land they were on, but they had a full discussion on racism, on immigration, on gun violence, on mass incarceration, and not a single one of them brought up Native peoples or Native issues. And so that's the challenge, is people will do it in a place where, when they're around me or around other Natives, mm. but they won't do it when they're out in the general public or especially under the national spotlight. Then they won't bring up those things because that becomes much more controversial. I want to talk about your presidential campaign. But before we do, I want to know more about you as a person. What would you say is at the core of your being? And what drives you every single day? What drives me? There are many things. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm the son of a mother of American and Dutch heritage and a Navajo man. And I've lived both on and off our Navajo Nation. I have a, a wife who is mostly of German descent, German-American descent. So I have kids who have both Dutch and German and Navajo in them. 
these are the things that are really at my core. These are the things that shape what I believe. They shape the things that I value. And they, they help me to, they give me a very unique lens. So not only am I a Christian, but I am the descendant of boarding school survivors. And so both my grandparents on my father's side were Christians. They helped translate for the early missionaries for our Navajo people. But because of the injustice of the boarding schools, they were presented and accepted a very colonial version of the Christian faith. Let's talk about boarding schools and their histories in America. The boarding school uh, movement, if call that is a product of a philosophy of assimilation that's also marked by that time period. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. That was a popular mindset when the United States government forced Native American children to attend assimilation boarding schools in the late 19th century. Meaning they had to give up their language, give up their culture, give up their understanding of what was sacred and basically become Americans in order to follow this faith or practice this faith. I've spent most of my adult life trying to decolonize that faith. And actually this book that I, I am work I finished and uh, is being released next month, uh, it's called On Selling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy, The Doctrine of Discovery. And this book is basically my critique of how the Christian church got from the teachings of Jesus who said radical things like love your neighbor and lay down your life for other people to a church that literally endorses slavery, justifies genocide, and dehumanizes anyone who doesn't look, act, or behave like a white American European. And so, so much of what that's my core is trying to embrace the fullness of how I've been created and who my family and who my relationships are. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. How were you raised? What was your spiritual formation? And how does all that tie together? So I was raised, uh, I often tell people I was raised, was born on a mission compound just off the Navajo Reservation. That was, this compound was run by the, the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch denomination, a Dutch-influenced denomination. Uh, it was right outside of a, of a border town called Gallup, New Mexico. The population of Gallup is about one-third Native, one-third White, and one-third Latino or Hispanic. I've been exposed to American culture and the American educational system. I graduated from a private school that uh, was started in early 1900s as a boarding school. And while I was attending it, um, it was transitioning from a boarding school to a day school. And so I had several friends there who were there as boarding school students, and I was there as a day school student. And Many times our experiences were vastly different. I also graduated from UCLA and uh, got my undergrad there. And you know I've lived in large cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so my my childhood was very much I, I guess you could say I grew up by and large as a white evangelical and uh, began to when I got into college began to realize that. I wasn't quite as assimilated as I thought I was and began to explore some of the other identities and cultures that were within me, my Navajo culture and 
and that. And then throughout my adult life, I've been trying to journey through that and understand those things and then live out of them. Up until that point, you felt like you were colonized. It began very, yeah, it began there. I actually was, uh, again, I, I went to UCLA thinking I was fairly assimilated and wouldn't have much problem adjusting there. My first, uh, my first lecture, the professor gave us our syllabus and gave us the dates of the midterms, the dates of the finals, and said there's one excuse for late work that I accept, and that's if you're dead. If you're not dead, don't bother calling me. Now, I had grown up in a very Western linear perception of time, but I also grew up with an understanding of Navajo time. And so that began to help me understand that I operate much more in a circular perception of time as compared to a linear. And I actually really struggled in college until it was my third or fourth year when I actually became very aware of how circular I was in my thinking and in the way that I just I operated best. And yet I was trying to, to move within a very linear environment. And once I understood that, I was able to, to adjust better. But those first three and a half or four years, I felt like I was trying to put a, a, a square peg into a round hole mm-hmm. where it just it wasn't making sense and I was offending people and I wasn't getting good grades and I wasn't adjusting well. Mm-hmm. But after that, it, it began to, once I understood the, the underlying issue, which was in that case a, a different understanding of time, a different perception of time and how much I actually owned a circular perception of time. Uh, then I began to adjust better, and then it just it kind of snowballed from there. I um, I completed my uh, language requirement at UCLA by studying Navajo at the University of New Mexico, and moved back to the Southwest uh, a few years after graduating, or right after graduating, and began working within the Native community there. Um, eventually, ended up pastoring a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center, and it was at that church where the congregation kind of asked me to teach them as their pastor of what it meant to contextualize worship. And so we were, I got introduced into that circle of relationships, and that's what motivated me to move back to the Navajo Nation um, in the early 2000s. And we moved from Denver back to the Navajo Nation uh, for three years, we lived in a very remote section of our reservation. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We were in a one-room hogan, about maybe twice the size of, of the studio we're sitting in, about 25 feet in diameter, dirt floor, log walls. The community we lived in had no running water, no electricity. Our neighbors we lived with were rug weavers and shepherds. Uh, we cooked over a camp stove or over an open fire. We hauled our water. We had an outhouse, a few, a few, you know, 50 yards away from the Hogan we lived in. Uh, And it was living there that when we moved there, you know, we thought that the biggest adjustment would be living off the grid. But that wasn't. The biggest adjustment was living in the reality of how marginalized and forgotten Native peoples are. Probably within the first three to four months, I learned that by and large, the only only group of non-Natives who comes to Indian reservations are those who come to give us charity, are those who come to take our picture. Almost no one comes for the purpose of getting to know us.
and I began to see the historical trauma of my people. I began to learn about the unjust history of what happened. I began to feel this intense marginalization and either forgottenness by our country. And I was trying to process through this. I had never been an insecure person. I had never felt out of place, especially even racially. I, I always felt like I could go within any environment that I was in. And yet I began to get very insecure and very, very angry. And I was trying to process this with my non-Native friends, most of all of whom lived off the reservation. So we would email or we would, we would call and talk. And every time we would talk about this subject, I could feel the anger kind of coming up in me. And I had to eventually hang up the phone because I was going to start screaming at my friends. So I learned how to disconnect emotionally so I could talk about it like I talked about something I read in the newspaper. It feels like our Native communities is this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later and we're tired, we're old, we're weak, or we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, what causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I began sharing that with non-natives, and now instead of getting defensive, they would come back and say to me, what does it mean to say thank you? How does my people, my family, my community, my city, my state, even my nation express gratitude to the host people of Turtle Island? Well, now we're having a very different conversation. Now instead of victim versus oppressor, now instead of being fraught with guilt and, and overwhelmed with your oppression, now we're talking about what I think is the heart of our nation's challenge in this area, which is we're talking about this reversal of roles, where aside from African-Americans who are brought here as slaves and Native Americans who are indigenous to these lands, this is a nation of technically undocumented immigrants, it's over 300 million of them who've left their lands, they've left their homes, they've left everything they knew and understood, and they came here largely seeking some sort of prosperity. They have no idea why the mountains live where they sit where they sit. They have no idea why the rivers flow where they flow. As a result, many of them, most of them live here like someone like might live in a hotel room. Meanwhile, the indigenous peoples are being treated as unwanted guests in someone else's house. And so we need to have this reversal of roles. And so there's a deep need, you know, this is why if you look at, at, at the Black Hills in Mount Rushmore, you know, the, the government stole that land from the Lakota people. And later they felt shame about it and they tried to pay the Lakota people for that after they had carved the face of some of their most genocidal presidents into it. But now they wanted to, to make some sort of amends, and they offered to buy it. Well, a United Nations investigator has said the United States should return some land to Native American tribes, including South Dakota's Black Hills, which is home to the famous Mount Rushmore Monument. 
In recent weeks, James Anaya, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, conducted the U.N.'s first ever investigation into the plight of Native Americans living in the United States. And the Lakota people said it's not for sale. You can't pay us for that. See, that's what terrifies the United States of America, is that it can't actually buy its way to justice here. And it doesn't know what to do about that. And so this is why, this is part of what's, what's beneath even this chaos we're seeing today. So what is it to you about remembering the past that's so powerful? I mean, you've been doing this longstanding research on the doctrine of discovery, and you've devoted so many years of your life to it. How can history be a key for people? You know, people will say, well, back in the 40s and 30s and 40s, we were so great. No, we weren't. This is when segregation was at the, you know, this was when, when, when blacks and whites and people of color couldn't even be in the same room together. We didn't have a healthy community then. It was great for white people. But this was not a healthy environment. This nation has never had a healthy environment for all the people, for everyone who lives here. And so... One of the things that I've really, I advocate for a lot is we need to create this common memory. We have to, we have to remember what it is we're standing on. This is our history. Three and a half years after signing the Pacific Railway Act, Abraham Lincoln has not only hung the Dakota 38, but he's literally ethnically cleansed the Dakota and the Winnebago from Minnesota the Cheyenne and Arapaho from Colorado, and the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from, from the, the territory of New Mexico, making way for the Transcontinental Railway, making him one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And we honor him as one of our greatest presidents. Why? Because who writes the history books? It's the winners, and we don't know how to talk about that. And yet it's eating our nation alive. This is where I talk about American exceptionalism, which is a bipartisan value, is the coping mechanism for a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past as well as its current racist reality. And this is where I'm with my even with my campaign, I'm trying to do this very differently. I am I am determined to run this campaign not by appealing to the exceptionalism of white America, but by decentering whiteness. So, so tell us a little bit about your campaign. I think this is a perfect place to start bringing it up. What made you decide to run for president of the United States, and, and what are you hoping to achieve in this exercise? I proposed the idea of using the presidential election cycle to bring this dialogue to the forefront, because every four years we have a national conversation about who we are and where we're going. And then I watched with great interest as Bernie Sanders got the United States to talk about something it didn't want to talk about, which is systemic economic inequality, and he did it by running for president. So I was using the language, I'm looking for a candidate. And I was using that the entire spring of 2016. And when we got to the DNC, I was literally listening for and looking for who is some of the rising stars within our presidential political pool who might be able to bring this to the forefront. And Cory Booker was in that list. And so when at the DNC, he blatantly affirmed American exceptionalism, I was like, I don't think I'm going to find a professional candidate. 
no matter how progressive. And so it was after the DNC where I began asking the question, okay, if I'm not going to find a candidate, what would it take to become that candidate? And I began exploring that. I wasn't going to start a, you know, I wasn't going to um, start an exploratory committee. I wasn't going to do polling. I wasn't trying to figure out, is this message palatable? Because <laughs> I knew it wasn't. But I was asking the question, can I articulate this in a way and to as many audiences as necessary that doesn't diminish the core of the message? And then once we had that figured out, the question was, do we actually have a platform if we get traction that we could run, we could actually govern from? And so those were the questions I began asking after 2000, after the DNC in 2016. And then it was in the fall of, or in the spring of 2019 where I felt confident enough that, okay, we're ready to do this. And I announced my, my candidacy at the end of May um, in 2019. I want you to vote for me for president. My name is Mark Charles. My father is Navajo Dinah indigenous to these lands. And my mother is American of Dutch heritage. And I am their son. And I am thrilled, I am excited, I am humbled, and I am honored to announce that I am running for president. I deeply believe our nation needs to find a way to move forward. But I also am deeply convicted we can't do that without looking behind us. You know, it's fascinating when, you, and, and, and you know this as well as I do, you know, that, that people of color are told by this country, get over the past, forget about it, you know, just move on. And yet then the mantra at 9-11 is never forget, <laughs> you know? And so that, that's the discrepancy. That's the problem is this nation wants to remember some things, but there's many things it also doesn't want to remember. So tell us a little bit about that work and how humanizing people ties in with your vision for the future. I am running for the presidency of the United States of America. I'm not running a protest campaign. I'm not doing this merely to raise an issue or to ask a question or to start a conversation. I am running because I absolutely believe I am the most qualified person to do this job. And I have one of the best proposals to get us through these challenges we're facing and actually get us to a better place as a nation. I'm so grateful to Mark for taking time to chat with us. I learned so much from him about histories and peoples who have been wiped out of our societies and our history books. Understanding how indigenous folks have been colonized helps us reanimate stories that have been left for dead. And as Mark helps us see so clearly, lifting up these stories also helps us understand what's going on in our country and around the world today. Thank you to our guest, Mark Charles. Thanks to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network. Thanks to Venley for their support. And thanks also to my brother, Rajuju, for the theme music. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Such recall and talk to y'all later.